And so, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together in these moments be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Follow the money, some people say, when they're trying to get to the bottom of something corrupt. Follow the money and it will lead you to the cause or it will lead you to the source. Since that pretty much seems to work and make sense much of the time, I want to take that advice this morning but change the subject. You see, it's bread I want us to follow today. And not to the cause, but to God. Follow the bread and it will lead you to the source of all life. I mean, that's pretty close to being John's gospel in a sentence, actually. And it's not just bread for believers only. We're told it's bread for the world, the world that God so loves. The story of Jesus' breakfast on the beach with his disciples is one of those fabulous stories in the Gospels that is rich with details. I love that there's 153 fish. A boat full of fishermen who have been up all night for nothing, watching daybreak on the surface of the water because they're too tired to raise their heads to the sky. A mysterious stranger on the beach calling out instructions across the water. And then a sudden churning of the water on one side of the boat. So many fish clambering into the net that the disciples have to scramble to weigh it down on the other side lest it tip over. Then the proverbial light bulb above Peter's head. When scarcity turns to abundance, who is usually there? He knows. Or thinking he knows who is doing the yelling, Peter leaps up, puts some clothes on so he can jump into the water. It seems a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? But the Gospel of John's gone out of our way, out of its way to tell us he'd taken them off. And leaving others to do the heavy lifting of getting the fish into the boat, he jumps in and acts on that first impulse that comes into his head, which is so like Peter and like some of us too. And the scene that follows has something for all five of the senses. Charcoal fire for the cold skin, cooked smoke for the nose, Jesus himself for the eyes and the ears, fish and bread to taste. It's a scene that speaks to the body. Which is all the more remarkable since that this is one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. According to the Gospel of John, this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples after his death. And what's noticeable perhaps for us this morning is that Jesus doesn't come back as some kind of see-through spirit with disembodied wisdom to share with his friends. Instead, he comes back as their fishing guide and their breakfast chef, their feeder, in other words, who makes himself known to them by making sure they have plenty of fish and bread to eat. Afterwards, of course, he goes out of his way to remind Simon Peter that following him means that they are to be feeders of other people too. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs. 
And again Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him for the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, in Jesus' day, you could tell how much money people had by what kind of bread they ate. Rich people ate bread made with fine milled wheat flour. Poor people ate coarse barley loaves or maybe a handful of parched grain that they longed to pretend was bread. It's a bit different for us now, really, isn't it? We mainly get our bread from Asda or Waitrose. Other supermarkets are available. And it's gone the other way, hasn't it? You know, now that the posh bread is the stuff full of the grains, it's coarse, it's, it, it's totally flipped. And as well as the bread bread, there's the tortillas and the pitta, the bagels, the naan in the bakery section. There's the heavy 12 grain and there's thin sliced white bread on the bread aisle. There's the speciality bread in the freezer section. And then there's the bread machine mixes in the aisles round the corner. There's bread, there's bread and there's bread. In Jesus' day, not so much. You made what you could with what you could afford. If you had land, that was the best luck of all. You could afford to grow your own grain, perhaps even sell a bit of extra to somebody else. If you had no land, you had to depend on people who did. You paid what they charged, or you did without. This is why... In the Old Testament, you have this system of jubilee. The land returns to its owners every seven years, so no one could accumulate all the land to stop this is happening. We see what happens in our world today, where a small number of very wealthy people own everything and everyone else is stuck paying whatever it is we have to pay for the thing that is owned by a very small number of people. More on that next week. In those days, to pray, give us our daily bread, was not a sentiment to be printed on flower sack calendars to be hung in our kitchens. It was a prayer you prayed for your children's lives. It was a prayer you prayed so that you could feed them and maybe yourself. I think this is partly why so much of Jesus' teaching seemed to involve bread. Follow those teachings through the Gospels and it's hard to believe that Jesus was only interested in the health of people's eternal souls. Follow the bread, and it's hard not to believe that he was just as dedicated to the health of people's God-made bodies on the earth too. Have you ever counted the bread stories in the Gospels? There are dozens of them, even if you take out the parallel stories that appear in more than one Gospel, like the feeding of the 5,000 and the Last Supper. And tucked between all of those is also a famous no-bread story. Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out two by two to minister in his name not to take any bread, which on the face of it seems like an odd thing to say. Shouldn't Jesus have instead blessed some bread, tucked it into their backpacks in case anyone else might have needed it? Maybe it was a super loaf that just kept multiplying in the backpack and never ran out. Every time they reached in, there was some more. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he told his disciples to take no bread in Mark chapter 6. Perhaps he didn't want them thinking of themselves as the haves that were going to bestow their bounty on the have-nots. Maybe. 
Perhaps he wanted to make sure they had to rely on the kindness of strangers instead of supplying their own needs. When they came to a new town, you see, breadless, they would either have to find someone with a hospitable heart or they would go to bed hungry. What better training could they have as the future leaders of the church than to be reminded that when God answered their prayer for daily bread, God would almost always do that through other people. Blessed are you who are hungry now, Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. Sometimes the word blessed there is translated as happy. Happy are you who are hungry now. That's another odd piece of teaching, isn't it? It's an odd piece of teaching in any culture that views having plenty to eat as a happier state of affairs than having none. But Jesus could tell just by looking at the people in front of him that they were scraping by on less than their fair share of food. Some of them didn't know where their next bread was coming from. And their whole bodies, as they sat in front of Jesus, told him that they'd soaked up the shame of thinking that somehow this was their fault. That being hungry meant there was something wrong with them. That they were less blessed, less loved by God than the people who had more. So Jesus fixed that first before he ever offered them any bread. The first thing you need to know is that blessed and loved by God are you who are hungry. You are not less loved because you don't have bread in your cupboard. Jesus goes out of his way to say to the people in front of him. This, of course, is absolutely not the same as telling people that it was their lot in life to stay hungry. That's not what Jesus is saying. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled, he says. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Jesus saw something other than hunger in their futures. He saw them being filled and counted on his disciples to get busy with making that happen now. He goes on, give to everyone who begs from you. Do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel is full of this kind of thing. Is there anyone among you, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for fish, will give a snake? So if we take all of these teachings in the Gospels about bread, and we add to them the other things that we know, all the stories that happened around tables, around the dinner tables, at Levi the tax collector's house, where Jesus was criticised for the bad company he kept, At Simon the Pharisee's house, where a woman bathed Jesus' feet with her tears. In the upper room where he had that last Passover with his friends, reminding them that it was better to serve than to be served. Add those stories to the list, my friends, and the trail of breadcrumbs to God starts to look like a full-on pathway and not a trail at all. See, in Jesus' day, bread was so central to people's lives that there was no way to talk about politics or economics or class or religion and all those other things you've been desperately trying not to talk about with your relatives for the last week without eventually getting round to who had enough bread and who didn't. And that meant that it also wasn't possible to talk about bread for very long without talking about the justice systems that awarded some people plenty of bread and left others with none. 
What created the chasm between the man who feasted every day and the poor man Lazarus who laid at his gate? One of them had too much bread. The other had none. What separated the sheep from the goats? One gave food to the hungry, the other gave none. Easily one of the most famous bread stories in the whole of Scripture involves Jesus turning a few loaves into enough to feed thousands of people. His disciples wanted Jesus to send the people away, perhaps remembering that he'd sent them off with nothing in their backpacks. Shouldn't they learn the same lesson that we've just learned? Perhaps they should go into the villages nearby and trust that people will be hospitable to them and learn. If they followed the same logic, that would make sense. But Jesus was worried that the crowd might not make it at all. And we're told he had compassion for them because they've been with him for three days and they have nothing to eat. And so here is a teacher with the wellspring of life who does not separate the body from the soul. He wants his followers to have more than words to eat, so he makes them some food where they are. I wonder what other bread stories you have in mind from the Bible as we gather together this morning. Maybe it's the story that took place in the wilderness where the devil tempts Jesus to make bread out of stone so that no one ever goes hungry again. Jesus said no that time. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why does Jesus seem to change his mind? Why does he make food in one situation and not in another situation? And here's something that's so easy to miss. That Jesus never turns stones into bread. Not in the wilderness, not on the beach, not anywhere. Jesus never makes manna rain down from heaven. He never creates food from nothing. He always works with what the disciples bring him. Have you noticed that in the stories? When Jesus asked the disciples to feed the crowd, they give him the exact numbers of people who were there so that he will understand just how little they have. And he ignores their maths, along with their insecurity, and he asks them to bring what they have to him, and he'll take it from there. And then he makes more out of it. They add Jesus multiplies without ever cutting his disciples out of the equation. Do you notice how he does this? His miracles involve their willingness to give him what they have. Jesus never carries a bottomless backpack full of super reproducing bread so that he can be the one man solution to a world of need. Instead, he relies on his followers to remember what he taught them when he sent them out two by two. That when God answers the prayer for daily bread, he often does that through other people. The same thing happens at the end of John's Gospel, with fish and bread again, but this time at the beach. Come back with me to the story and now notice what happens. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Well, you'd think given all that they'd gone through and the great victory over sin and death that Jesus has won, that he might just for once, in this moment, give them something for nothing. But he doesn't. Bring some of what you've just caught, 
he says to them. Now, they can see the charcoal fire on the beach, already laid with fish on it and with bread. Why can't they just have that? But they can't do it because it would not be communion without some of their fish too. They cannot eat it because they cannot be his disciples without becoming people who actively make a contribution. The Christian faith is never a passive one. And so Peter brings some fish, and Jesus adds it to the feast. And when everything is ready, they watch him do what they've seen him do so many times before. He takes the bread and he gives it to them. And he does the same with the fish. It's how they know that it's him. Because he feeds them body and soul. Not like spiritual babies who have nothing to bring to the feast, although there are times for sure when each of us feel like that, I'm sure, just as they would have done but instead as grown-up partners in the ministry of feeding the world, followers of the word, made bread, whom he commissions to go on feeding others. Hear those words again. Do you love me? You know I do. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? You know I do. Tend my sheep. Do you love me? You know everything. You know that I do. Feed my sheep. I guess we could have a very long and potentially interesting theological conversation about who those sheep are exactly. I've no intention of opening that box this morning. But if you've ever been fed body and soul at the dinner table where you broke bread with friends or even friendly strangers, then I think you know the answer to that question. See, when you break bread, the bread opens up. And when the bread opens up, so does the table. And when the table opens up, so does your heart. And when your heart opens up, so does your hands. Reaching out for some of what you have to hand it to someone else, only to discover that when you do that, you in fact have more of what you need and not less. This is how the miracle goes on happening again and again and again. You follow the bread. And the bread leads you to life. Not only for you, and not only for your tribe, but for all of God's people. So come, friends, let us find life in the bread again. Bring what you have to him, and trust that Jesus can take it from there.